uh, to transition into what we typically do at RUF is we typically walk through a book of the Bible at this point. But we're doing something a little bit differently this semester. We're, we're taking a topical approach on what the Bible has to say as a whole about relationships. And we saw last week that we are designed and formatted for relationships. But even our strongest, healthiest relationships are challenging and complicated and hard. And we discovered one of the reasons why that is last week is because we're selfish. Fundamentally, we approach every relationship from a standpoint of self-interest. But that's not the only reason why relationships are hard and messy and complicated. We're going to look at another reason tonight. And so um, I'm going to draw your attention now to this passage, Genesis chapter 3, in front of you. We'll pick up in verse 6, or if you have a Bible, you can turn there and we'll look at it together. reads this. When the woman, that's Eve, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, let's pray and then we'll look at it together. Let's pray. Father, pray that now in these next few moments that you would be gracious to meet us, that wherever we find ourselves tonight, you would invade our life in a way that fills us with your presence and with your grace and with the reassurance of your love. There are many folks in this room that don't believe that or have grown numb to that or have just kind of gotten um, 
tired of that reality and maybe find themselves in a room like this tonight curious about why they even chose to waste an hour and a half uh, in this room. There's others, others of us in this room that um, are really wrestling with things and things that we've done already these first few weeks of school. There's some of us in this room that are hurting and are lonely and feel overwhelmed with school already. And Father, regardless of where we find ourselves tonight, would you be gracious to meet us and to show us what is true and what is right and what is beautiful? We would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what I want to do. To get into this passage, which I know is kind of a long reading, I want to begin by asking three questions kind of right from the outset. Here's the first question. Let's just say that you were to sit down with somebody that knows you well, maybe a parent or a professor or a pastor or maybe even a close friend, and they were going to evaluate you and give you feedback on who you are as a person. And they said on the front end of this conversation, okay, I'm going to tell you five positive, encouraging things about you, and I'm going to give you one negative thing, one area uh, that you need to work on. So here's the question. Why, after that conversation, would those five things be muted and that one negative thing be amplified? Second question. This is for the Christians in the room. Why is it that you would prefer to have a pastor or a speaker like me get up here and berate you and just convict you and beat the crap out of you rather than to have a pastor get up here and just tell you about how much Jesus loves you. I mean, why is it when you come out of some meetings, I mean, I've heard you say this before, you're like, oh man, that guy, he just shredded me. He just, oh, so convicting. It was awesome. Why is that so much, you connect with that so much more than you would connect with someone just told me Jesus loved me. Third question. This is for everyone in the room. Why is it that guys are so terrible about asking girls out on dates? Why is it that guys are so terrified and paralyzed that they would actually rather just kind of hang around you and just sort of be your friend for a while until it kind of gets awkward and nobody knows what it is, that they would actually rather do that than to pony up and ask the girl on a date? Why is it? So those are the three questions, and the answer to all three of those questions, I think, is the same. The answer is shame. Shame is that thing in you that mutes encouragement and amplifies criticism. Shame is that thing in you that you would much rather just get the crap kicked out of you and convicted and told you that you're awful rather than tell you that Jesus loves you. Shame is that thing in you guys and girls that prohibits you from taking risks, from from initiating when there's no guarantee that there's going to be any results. Shame is that thing inside of every one of us that, uh, as one research scientist put it, this, this is a modern epidemic in our culture, and no one's really talking about it. And it's that thing that has the power to short circuit every one of your relationships, your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with other people. So what is it? What is shame? And then how do we deal with it? Well, that's the two questions that I want to try to answer tonight from Genesis chapter 3 again. What is it? What is shame? And then how do we deal with it? Okay? So first, what is it? We use that word. Let's just all get on the same page. And by the way, the Old Testament, which Genesis is a part of, the Old Testament doesn't just give you definitions to terms in some ways like the New Testament does. Rather than just tell you uh, what it's talking about, it shows you. 
And it shows you through images and stories. And in this particular story, it gives you three really poignant images that when you put it together, give you a very clear understanding of what shame is. So what I want to do is I just want to kind of pick apart these three different images and walk through it with you. Here's the first image that we see in the story. It's the image of nakedness. Look look back at verse 7 with me. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Shame begins with that feeling of that you're naked, that you feel exposed. This is why in verse 10, if you look down to verse 10, Adam connects being naked to fear. He's afraid of being found out. He's afraid of being seen. Now, if we're honest, I think this is why deep down... Buried somewhere in your soul, everybody has this question when you walk through these doors tonight or when you walked on campus this semester. And the question is this, what if people here find out? What if they find out what I'm doing with my boyfriend? What if they find out about my family? What if they find out about my porn addiction? What if they find out what I do when I'm by myself? These are the questions that sort of buried deep inside of you that terrify you. What if, what if I'm exposed? You feel naked, you feel vulnerable, and you react the same way that Adam and Eve did, which is to hide, to cover yourself, to construct some sort of fig leaf to hide behind. And we can hide behind a lot of different things. For a lot of us, we just hide behind busyness, behind how busy we are. So we get involved in a ton of different things because as long as I'm moving, nobody can see me and actually know me. You you know, you can't hit a moving target. We can hide behind our busyness. We can hide behind our spiritual devotion, our spiritual activity, our spiritual intensity, that as long as I'm involved in a few campus ministries and go to church and I go to Bible study and I use the right language, you know, kind of that Christianese thing, then people won't think to ask questions. People won't, you know, it's just a nice spiritual diversion tactic so so people don't actually look at me. I mean, this was me in college. I I counted up today, I was involved in four campus ministries when I was an undergrad, and I went, I bounced back and forth from three different churches, because one church I liked the teaching, one church I liked the music, one church I liked the people, so I'd just go to this and this and this and this, and I would just go on rotation, and what happened was a lot of people noticed me, a lot of people thought I was spiritually intense because I was everywhere, but nobody knew me. Just a way of hiding. Just one form of fig leaves. I mean, we can do it with anything. You can hide behind your personality. I mean, for a lot of you, especially freshmen, you came to UT. It's a whole new world. You kind of have a clean slate. A lot of people here don't know you from your past, and you really can reconstruct who you are, what you want to be, what you want to be seen as. So some of you got to UT, and you're like, I'm gonna, I want to be known as the funny guy. That's going to be my new kind of identity here. Or I'm going to be known as like the really spiritually intense guy. Or I'm going to be the, the, the funny girl, the smart girl. I'm going to be the person that just drinks everybody under the table and can handle it. You know, whatever it is, you pick something. And so really the question is, what is it? What are you hiding behind? Is it your busyness? Is it your spiritual activity? Is it your personality? It could be anything. But we're all hiding behind something. So that's the first image of kind of what you know, one layer of what shame is. is nakedness. Here's another image here. It's, it's the image of rejection. You know, if you look at the story, the man and the woman, they're separated from each other, and they're separated from God, so much so that the very last verse, verse 23, they're actually driven out of the garden. It's this image of them being banished, of them being rejected, that human beings are outsiders. And so this sort of image of rejection is that voice inside of you that says, I don't, I don't belong here. I don't fit in. 
I'm different from other people here. I, uh, you know, these people succeed, I fail. They're acceptable, I'm not. They have friends, they have their friend group. I don't. I don't fit in, I don't belong here. It's that feeling, that's that voice of shame inside of you saying, I don't belong here. It, it, really, if, any, if you're ever noticeably different from everyone else, you have felt this thing called shame. Now, we live in a culture obsessed with being thin. And so if you have any extra, extra body weight at all, you have felt that, that sense of shame. If you grew up with a learning disability, you have felt shame. If you, if you grew up in a family that had financial troubles when everybody else seemed to be doing fine, you, you have felt shame. If, if you, especially in the South, oftentimes, if you're attracted to the same sex, you have felt shame. So we have nakedness, we have rejection, and here's the last sort of image that we get here. It's the image of being unclean. If you go back at verse 7 and you ask the question, okay, what was it about them being naked that drove them to want to cover up? Why did they want to cover up? What was, the, what, why, what was it deep down that they were trying to hide? I think it's because deep down they thought, me, who I really am, it's unpresentable. I'm unpresentable as I really am, so I've got to cover up. I've got to make people look somewhere else. It's that sense of deep down, I'm, I'm unclean, I'm contaminated, I'm, I'm disgusting, I'm, I'm unlovable. I don't know if anybody listens to Radiohead anymore, but... Um, there was a song that came out in 1993, which was before many of y'all were born, uh, called Creep. And they nailed, y'all know what I'm talking about? Four of y'all know the song? Uh, they nailed, they put words to this feeling of deep down, I'm unclean. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to read you a couple lyrics. I've got to edit it because it's, it's a little PG-13. But here's what it says. It says, I don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice when I'm not around. You're so special. (laughs) Wish I had a beep button up here or something. You're so special. I wish I was special. And here's the chorus. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. And I, I think I mean, it's such a—it's a really sober, heavy song. But they put words to that thing that we feel—that we don't belong here. That everyone else is doing great, and I'm not. Everyone else is—everyone else belongs and fits in, and I don't. There's something inside of me that's not okay. And honestly, that's why some of you are working your fingers to the bone with your schoolwork to try to prove to yourself, or your parents, or your professors, or to whoever, everybody, that I'm really okay. You're trying to prove it. I'm okay. This is also why for a lot of you, Rush last week or whatever it was a couple weeks ago was so absolutely terrifying. Because what you're actually doing is you're you're going in front of a group of people and you're saying, I want you to tell me that I'm okay and that I belong. That I belong with y'all. That's why it's so devastating when they don't tell you that. Where it's, so, it's such an awful experience that you, you kind of pull the plug halfway through and say, I don't, I don't even want to go through this because I don't like the feeling of being evaluated and having someone actually look at me and say, you might be okay, you might not be okay. You do belong or you don't belong. So, okay, you put these three images together, nakedness and rejection and that sense of feeling unclean. You put all this together, that's what shame is. 
If I were to put words to kind of all of this, shame is that deep sense that we're unacceptable. That deep sense that I'm, I'm a failure, that I'm not worthy, that I'm unlovable, that I'm gross. And here's the thing. Every single one of us in this room has it. I mean, think about that. The person next to you feels that way sometimes. The person up here feels that way sometimes. We all have it. And don't you see how it's different from guilt? Guilt is feeling bad about something that you've done. Shame is feeling bad about something that you are. Guilt is, uh, I made a mistake. Shame is, I am a mistake. And here's why this is relevant to what we're talking about this semester with relationships. Because if you're going to have any hope of a life-giving, rich relationship with another human being, you have to be seen. You have to be known. That's the only way that you're going to connect with another human being. But shame is that thing that blocks you, that prevents you from being seen, from being known. And so you hide, you lie, you pretend. You don't let yourself be actually seen, be known, because it's so absolutely terrifying. But you can't connect unless you get past it. So then what do we do about it? If that's what shame is, this awful, heavy, terrible thing that we all feel, then what do we do about it? Well, to set this up, uh, let me kind of get into it this way. I'm sure you've heard of TED Talks. TED Talks are these really popular kind of short 20-minute presentations that professionals give that are at the top of their research field. And it's mostly kind of innovative, techie, science kind of stuff. But the most watched, the most downloaded, the most popular TED Talk ever given was by a research scientist named Brene Brown. And her talk was The Power of Vulnerability. Very interesting. Very interesting that that was the topic that was the most popular. Maybe some of y'all have seen it. I've watched it with some of y'all. But basically, here's what she does in this 20-minute deal. is She tells her story about her research and how her research led her into a kind of an existential crisis, sent her to therapy, and how she had a breakdown. Because what she discovered was, in her research, the happiest people that she worked with, the most wholehearted, grounded people that she worked with were people that embraced vulnerability, People that were willing to be seen, willing to kind of take that, that risk of being known, even though it was, it was terrifying. Those were actually the happiest people that she worked with. And, the, and it sent her into a crisis because she realized, my research is telling me vulnerability is the key to happiness, but I hate vulnerability. And I'm allergic to it. I don't want anything to do with it. So she went into therapy, and she said after a year of going through therapy, she had a breakdown, which actually led to a breakthrough. And at the end of her little presentation, she asks the question that her, the whole 20-minute deal is marching towards, which is this. How can you get the courage to be vulnerable? How can you get the courage to kind of put yourself out there and be seen and have other people see you and possibly judge you and evaluate you? And you may seem ugly. You may seem unacceptable. How can you get the courage to do that? And here's her answer. Her answer is this. You have to know that you're worthy. You have to have a deep confidence and a deep reassurance that you're worthy. Which just, in my mind, only raises the, you know, it kind of just raises the question you know, one more level, which is, okay, well then how do you get that? How do you get the confidence to know that you're worthy when everything inside of you is telling you you're not? You know what I'm saying? So in other words, how can you have this sort of this deep feeling, this deep reassurance in your gut that says, I'm acceptable, when everything in you is saying you're not? Here's the Bible's answer to that question. The Bible's answer to that question of how do you get the confidence to have that sort of courage to be that sort of vulnerable? 
the only way that you get that sort of reassurance is you look at how the God of the Bible treats sinners. You look at how the God of the Bible treats sinners like you. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is, just, is, is to quickly look through this passage and look at how the God of the Bible relates to these people that are just soaking in shame and fear. How does he relate to them? Here's the first way he relates to them. Is he pursues them. If you look, at, if you look back at verse 9, they're hiding like in the trees from God. <laughs> and God says, where are you? He goes out looking for them. Where are you? He's pursuing them. We get this picture of this God that is aggressively on the hunt, forming a search party. And you see this God from the beginning of the Bible to the end that it says, I'm going after those that I love. I'm going after my people. I mean, he is Liam Neeson from Taken. He's, he's, he's aggressively going after those that he loves. I, I don't know if you... Um, listen to This American Life, but um, a few weeks ago, I, I heard this, this is a podcast, and they were reporting this story about this guy named Maurice Griffin. I don't know if you've heard this story. Maurice Griffin is this big 32-year-old African-American man, and this is the story of his childhood. When he was um, uh, growing up, his family abandoned him. He grew up in Northern California, and so he, he basically went in and out of different orphanages. And there was this one family in Northern California that started visiting him while he was at this one orphanage. And the mom of this family really grew attached to him, really connected with him. And they were visiting him for years on end until eventually she said, I, I think I want to bring him into our family. She, she was married to an African-American man. She was a white woman. She was married to an African-American man. They had two biracial kids. And so they thought, oh, this would be a perfect sort of fit for this young boy to come into our family. And it would just sort of, we have boys. He's a boy. It would just, it would fit. So they, um, when he entered into the foster care system, they brought little Maurice Griffin into their home. And he stayed with them for four years. And he was essentially like one of their kids. He was integrated in their family. He was best friends with the, with the other boys. And every now and then the social worker would come by to check on him and kind of hear how things were going. And they started going through the work of adopting him, legally adopting him as one of their children. So they go through that big, long, complicated paper trail of bringing Maurice into this family. And um, two months before he was supposed to be adopted, the social worker comes in and is talking with him. And Maurice tells her, tells the social worker, I've requested that my mom spank me. I want my mom to spank me because she spanks the other two boys, and I, I don't want to be treated any differently, so I've requested that uh, she spank me, and, so, and she's obliged. And he didn't know this, but it's, it was illegal in California to spank a foster kid. So the social worker makes a note, leaves, and come back, comes back the next day and says, hey, Maurice, let, let's go to McDonald's. Let's talk about this. And they get in the car. And they drive off and never return. And so Maurice was basically kind of ripped away from his family and had a kind of a terrible childhood after that. Went from family to family. They never saw each other again for 20 years. But the mom never stopped looking for him. You know, trying to find him, trying to find him in the foster care system, figure out where he might be. And, you know, a few years ago, this thing came out called MySpace, which is, you know, the sketchy version of Facebook. But she finds him on MySpace, sends him a message, he messages back, they start trading emails, eventually they trade phone numbers, and she calls him. 
And she says to him, I still want to adopt you. I've never given up on you. And there's this video, you can find this on YouTube, of, of, of this big 32-year-old burly man reuniting with this small little white woman 20 years later, hugging in the airport, crying. And it's their reunion. And what she says to him is she says, I, I've never quit on you. You are mine forever. And she's legally adopted this 32-year-old man into her family. Now, here's the question for you. How would you feel if you were loved like that? That no matter what you did, no matter how you felt, there was this aggressive, always and forever, never stopping love that was coming after you, that wanted you, that was not going to give up until they had you. That's the love that God has for you, that he pursues you. And it's not the people that are awesome, righteous, they got it together, they can keep up sort of people. It's shame-soaked people like you and me. That's who he comes chasing after relentlessly, aggressively. That's the first way that God treats sinners. He pursues them. But secondly, he provides for them. I don't know if you saw, but um, well, basically kind of the big sort of looming subtext of this passage is, hey, if you disobey God in this particular way, then you're going to die. And Adam and Eve disobey God, but they don't immediately die. Why? What happens? Well, uh, if you look at verse 21, it says that God clothed them with the skins of an animal. Where did those skins come from? They weren't just laying around. They came from the animal that God killed in their place. The big, the big threat on the table was if you disobey God, then, then your life is forsaken. And when they disobey, God forsakes the life of something else in its place. God provides a substitute. And of course, that little animal, whatever it was, did not satisfy the deepest needs of their heart. It was just pointing to the greater substitute that they really needed. Of course, the greatest substitute is Jesus himself. And it's really interesting, if if you've noticed, in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them include this one little detail during Jesus' crucifixion that while he was being crucified, the soldiers were casting lots for his garments. They were gambling for his clothes. Why that one little detail? Well, it tells you this, that as Jesus is dying, Jesus is stripped. He's naked. He's completely exposed. And he's raised up high for everybody to see. So here's Jesus completely exposed, completely naked, completely vulnerable. Everyone sees him. And what are they doing? Mocking him, shaming him, humiliating him, rejecting him. Ultimately, he's rejected by God himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Utterly abandoned, utterly forsaken, utterly naked. Why is the Bible so adamant to get this point across? Jesus is stripped, he's exposed, and he's shamed. Because he's your substitute. He is stepping in your place. That's what you and I deserve. That sort of ridicule, that sort of shame. And so Jesus says, I who have everything, I'm going to strip it all and lose it all for you. I will bear the shame for you. I will take it. I will be rejected so that when anyone looks at you and when God looks at you, you will never be rejected ever again. I'm rejected so that you can be accepted. God pursues. He provides. Here's the last thing. God covers God covers. If you look at verse 21 again, God takes those animal skins and he covers these people very tenderly in the substitute. So that now when anybody looks at these two people, they literally are seeing someone that is adorned with God's grace in their life. And of course, I think this is just a big foreshadowing of what God ultimately does with those who trust in Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, this means at the end of all of time, 
God's going to parade you in front of all of creation, and you will be adorned with the merits and the glory and the honor of Jesus himself. And everyone will applaud, and, and God will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. No criticism, just applause and glory and honor. That's what God does to people like you and me. He takes our shame, he covers us with honor, and he pursues us to the bitter end. He was stripped so that you could be covered. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was shamed so that you could be honored. And when you get that in your soul, I mean, that, that's the answer to Brene's Brown, Brene Brown's question of how can you have the confidence, how can you have the courage to be vulnerable like that? How can you have that sort of confidence that you're worthy It's only when you look at how God treats you that he makes you worthy. He takes your shame and he clothes you with honor. And when that sort of defines who you are, that's what gives you the confidence to be vulnerable. That's what gives you the confidence to let other people see you, even when it's scary. Because the only person in the universe that matters, the only person's evaluation of you in the entire universe that ultimately matters, looks at you in Jesus and says, you are accepted, you are honored. There is no shame, there is no criticism, there is no rejection. And if you believe that in your gut, that means you can get up in front of people and say, I really don't care what you think about me. Sororities or fraternities may reject me, it may hurt, but it, it doesn't destroy me. You may see me, you may reject me, it doesn't, it doesn't devastate me. Because my identity is rooted in a God that pursues me and provides for me and covers me. And so it does not matter what you say. When you have that sort of confidence, then you can be courageous enough to be vulnerable. And so I want to do this. I want to end with a question. I started with three. I'm going to end with one. And it's the question that you find in this passage. If you look at verse 9, again, it's God asking this question, where are you? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God ask questions? Because if God apparently knows everything, is he asking a question to get information that he doesn't quite know yet? No, that's, that's not why he's asking. The reason why he comes to Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? He's inviting them out of hiding. He's inviting them to come clean, to come out of the shadows and actually let yourself be seen by a God that pursues and provides and covers. And so that's, really, that's the question I want to leave with you tonight. For you to think about and to meditate on is this, where are, where are you? Where are you? Are you hiding? Are you pretending? Are you afraid? Are you presenting yourself in a a certain way so that people don't actually see you? Or are you resting in who Jesus is and what he has done for you? Where are you? Let me pray. Father, would you give us the grace to answer that question? And maybe by your grace to actually come out of hiding. Uh, I don't know if these folks are anything like me, but... But shame, is, it is on my radar. It is, it is something I wrestle with every day. And so would you give me, as well as these folks here tonight, the courage to find ourselves rooted and anchored in the person and work of Jesus, that we would be able to put ourselves in this story and to see a God like you pursuing us, providing for us, covering us. Father, would that do great work in our souls to make us confident and courageous to be vulnerable to be known and to actually maybe even for the first time connect and have a real relationship with another human being. Help us to have this sort of gospel-driven, grace-driven courage. It's terrifying. 
Thank you that you love us and that you're with us and that you would never reject us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.